0: Welcome to the Writer's Write Podcast, the show where every writer has the right to speak their mind. I'm your host, Joshua Howe, and as always, we'll be giving attention to the last thing my guest has written and their writing process. Today's guest is one of the most notable freelance writers in the basketball paradigm. His work can be found at Bleacher Report, Dime Magazine, and Sportsnet New York, and you've seen him in the past at places like The Athletic, NBC Sports, and USA Today. It's Sean Heiken. How are you doing, man?
1: I'm good. How about you? Thanks for having me on.
0: I'm good. Um, It's a really nice, gorgeous autumn day in in, uh, October here in um, Ontario. It's been brutal lately. The weather's been rough. The Raptors have been good. Weather's been rough. Kind of goes together, hand in hand. Weather gets good, Raptors lose a game. You know, seems to be how it goes.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's kind. That's kind of how it. I've only been to Toronto one time, and that was uh, All Star Weekend, 2016. And I think Uh, people told me after the fact that that was the most that was the the coldest weekend they had on record. And that was like the one weekend you didn't want to go to Toronto, but that was the one time I've been there.
0: <laughs> yeah. That was the, yeah. the cold snap that came. It was like a week before that. Um, it was actually a lot nicer. And we were all like, Oh, you know, it looks good. It's going to be, you know, not too bad. Everybody will come up for uh, all-star weekend and it's cold, but it's sunny and whatever. And then of course, you know, a massive cold snap comes and the temperature just drops insanely. And, yeah everybody comes up here and assumes we're in igloos and stuff and it was hard to uh hard to deny that kind of thing when you know it was just so cold here
1: yeah you know it's it's too bad because toronto it seemed like an awesome city i would love to go back there when it's not when when the weather is a little bit nicer maybe in the summer at some point but uh but yeah that was my one toronto experience
0: yeah it is a great city uh there's a lot to do there um I know a bunch of Raptors fans, obviously, are hoping Kawhi finds out he likes it. He said it was like New York recently, just a a little different. But he said that, yeah, he felt like it was kind of like New York, which is fascinating to me because I've never been to New York, and I hear it's just crazy busy, basically like Toronto, but just even more busy, which is just wild to me. So um yeah
1: but i mean there, i mean her, i mean kawaii seems like he's adapting okay to to toronto and i mean we'll we'll see obviously i don't think anybody really knows what he's going to do this summer but if it's purely a basketball situation just you know with how well they're doing so far i don't really see any way he sees some other situation and says you know this is a better situation than uh what i have now but then i thought he'd never want to leave the spurs for the same reason so who knows
0: yeah exactly it really is Really, it does seem to be that way. There's a lot of positive things to look at for Raptors fans when it comes to hoping Kawhi will stay, but you know, sometimes the pull of going home or at least closer to home is a lot, a lot stronger, and you never know. So, anyway, hopefully, he likes his time here. But um, it's kind of a good transition then to get into an article you wrote about Demar Derozan, now former Raptor. Still, kind of weird to think about and talk about. I am. And you wrote about him and the Spurs for uh, Bleacher Report in a piece called DeMar Derozan Spurs Embracing New Normals" that no one ever saw coming. Excellent piece. First thing I I noticed when I started reading it was um, just you have that the you know people talk about it all the time, but the fact that the Spurs haven't missed the playoffs or they since Tim Duncan you know came into the organization in 1997, and that's just it's just bananas to think about that.
1: Yeah, I know, and it's 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 pretty crazy to, to think about, especially when you go back and look. Because I I remember there there was a stretch in like February or March of last year where the Spurs lost a bunch of games in a row, or like or like right when it seemed like the Kawhi thing was gonna come to a head, where maybe he wasn't gonna play this season. I started looking up, you know, the last time the Spurs missed the playoffs, and I was looking up. I mean, you know how it always is. There will always be these people who are, like, saying, like, oh, the last time this happened, uh, this such-and-such such was the top movie in the country or, or, some, or something <laughs> like that. The, the I'm pretty sure uh, Notorious B.I.G., uh, Life After Death had just come out when the last time the Spurs missed the playoffs like, before the Tim Duncan draft.
0: Wow. Yeah, that's... <laughs> that really feels like just... Decades ago I mean So when Tim Duncan was, Well it
1: literally is decades it
0: lit- ago Yeah you're right It literally is decades ago I mean I, I It feels so long Like So Tim Duncan was Drafted in 1997 I was only three years old At the time So oh, God I'm old <laughs> So to me It just It feels like I don't know My whole life basically It's pretty close um, It's kind of wild I, I remember when I was younger And uh, as a kid And sort of Making my foray Into Basketball fandom and people would ask me, you know, which, which team do you root for? And I would say I, the Raptors ended up rooting for the Raptors. But that if I'd ever had um, a choice, because I felt like I hadn't had a personal choice growing up so close to Toronto, that I actually would have chosen the Spurs just because of the type of organization they have and how well run they are and all the stuff like that. And it's so weird then to see something like last summer where the franchise actually looked vulnerable for, for at least for me, what I can remember is pretty much the first time Like they were with the Kawhi situation, and it's like you really you note with this whole article really is that this summer, last summer didn't go the way it was supposed to for the Spurs or for DeRozan, Um, but now here we are.
1: Yeah, and it's kind of it's kind of wild just this run that the Spurs have had. of It's not just oh they've been good every year because plenty of teams you know there are teams that have been good for a lot of years in a row, but then there's always some kind of drama. The closest thing the Spurs had to drama like before this whole Kawhi thing. Was Tim Duncan almost left for Orlando in free agency in two thousand? Like he was seriously considering going and signing with the Magic the same summer that they had signed Tracy McGrady and Grant Hill. Right. And then he ended up staying in San Antonio. So the big, the uh, the biggest thing that happened was they almost lost a free agent eighteen years ago. Other than that, like s- since then, it's just been basically smooth sailing, at least as far as anything that's been able to become public. So this is definitely a new thing for them.
0: Yeah. It- yeah. It's it's kind of it just it really is kind of shocking and strange and but at the same time it's so hard to not think that they're going to recover and recover fairly quickly and of course part of their plan with that was you know getting back a star uh, in when they traded Kawhi and they did get DeRozan from the Raptors who is a very good player um, somebody I've watched closely for years now obviously being a Raptors fan and um, it's something you go into in the article that. DeRozan was a big part of legitimizing the Toronto Raptors. So he helped create a winning culture when there wasn't one. He helped forge an identity for a franchise that was kind of lost at sea. And the Spurs, on the other hand, have a very particular modus operandi. They have this established culture set in stone by Popovich and the others there. And so now DeRozan's kind of in this situation where he's part of something that he didn't help build. And now he's sort of the one who has to adjust in some ways, I guess, kind of for the first time. Um, how, so, how do you think that's looking so far? Just like not even just in terms of on-court production, but like how DeRozan seems to be reacting to Popovich and just like life in San Antonio. Well,
1: everybody I talked to, because I, I, when I, I wrote the stuff that I did as far as reporting, I, I did when the Spurs uh, came here to Portland, where I live, uh, last Saturday. And so I, you know, I spent some time, you know, talk, talking to you know different players and, and, and you know people around the team, you know, while they were in town. And from everything that uh, I was able to gather, DeRozan seems like he just is adapting great. He's you know he, he's really buying into the thing. And I mean, yeah, you can tell it was hard for him because clearly, I mean, you 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 know this as well as anybody, being in Toronto uh, when the trade went down in you know late July. He was really up, upset about the trade because he had been, he was the guy, like, and for a market like Toronto that doesn't really get free agents, he was the guy who was an all-star, you know, an all-NBA type of player who came out and basically said, "I love Toronto. I want to be here. I want to stay here my whole career." You know, and I, I think I think I noted this in the piece, but uh, when he was a free agent a couple of years ago, he didn't even take meetings with other teams. He, I'm pretty sure, he signed his new deal with the with the Raptors on July 1st. He was all in, just saying, "Look, I want to be here long term. This is where this is where I want to be." And usually, when you hear about you know a player changing teams, especially a player of that caliber, it's usually just uh, you know him saying, you know, I want to go to a bigger market or I want to go to a more winning situation. It's very rare that you have a guy who's that good who wants to be there and doesn't want to get traded, and then they trade him anyway. And obviously it was the right move for the Raptors to make because you trade for Kawhi Leonard at seven days a week if you have the opportunity to do it. Mm-hmm. But DeRozan was very unhappy about the trade at the time and he was very publicly unhappy about it at the time like he posted that thing on instagram where he said something about like loyalty doesn't exist in the game and then you know he did an interview on espn where he uh basically just said that that, you know that masai ujiri wasn't honest with him about what about what you know what was going on about whether he was involved in these trade talks, it's obviously the Raptors were in the mix for Kawhi. But kind of, I guess, I guess in his view, Masai had told him and told his agent that he had nothing to worry about and he was going to be okay. And then he ends up getting traded, so that's a big thing to adjust to. And I, you know, you kind of feel bad for the guy. I mean, obviously these guys are making a ton of money, so there's only so bad you can feel for them. But at the same time, yeah, you know, he. Uh he, you know, he was really comfortable in Toronto, and then he just got his life uprooted. But since then, you know, everybody in San Antonio has said, you know, he's been great. He's been buying into everything we're doing. He seems like he really wants to be here. He uh, is really embracing the culture. So, so far, it seems like it's going well. Now, the Spurs haven't gotten off to a great start to the year, but I, you know, I think I think a big part of that is just there's been so much other turnover with you know with their roster and they have all these other new pieces and they have all these injuries now with DeJounte Murray and uh, Derek White that you know they have a lot of stuff to adjust to not just the DeRozan thing.
0: Yeah I'm not really that surprised that DeRozan is able to sort of just slip into the way things are working fairly easily it seems like and, and get comfortable pretty quickly just because of um, you know, during his time in Toronto, he was always like that guy that, you know, he even won, I think it was last, just last year, he won, the, um, I don't remember exactly what it's called, but the award for speaking to the media, he's always been great talking to the media, um, he's always been for a quote, um, you know, in Toronto, it's one of the things that people have noticed in a little bit of a shift recently is he used to cover for Kyle Lowry a lot in terms of speaking to the media, so he would just go and speak and, or be at the podium and answer a lot of the questions, and Lowry didn't have to do as much of that. Um, and now he does, so that's one of the interesting shifts of just noticing that DeRose is not here anymore, that's something he used to do all the time, and so I'm not really that surprised that he's been very amiable and um, and just a good fit that way in San Antonio, Um, as as a fan of him as well, and just uh, knowing how, just what a good good person he is, and um, I'm also, you know, happy, just on an individual level, it's kind of a relief to see him doing well, I think, and Mm -hmm. Um, you know, after knowing how blindsided he felt by that trade in the offseason, it's it's hard not to want anything but uh, happiness for him. So it's really good that in that way he seems to be doing all right. And I think for the most part, it seems to be translating to the floor as well, because he looks pretty comfortable out there.
1: Yeah, and that was one of the things I was interested in once they made the trade over the summer is... This is a kind of, you know, obviously with the way the league is going, everybody's trying to play like the Warriors. Everybody is trying to, you know, shoot a lot of threes and and and, and play fast. And, you know, and the Spurs now are building around two guys who are both very good scorers, who are all-star level players and DeRozan and LaMarcus Aldridge, mm-hmm. who are mid-range guys. Like, they're basically trying to zig where everybody else is zagging, and... It's, you know, it, it's the kind of thing, and I asked Pop about this uh, when they were uh, in Portland and I was kind of working on this piece, and he basically said, look, this is what these guys are good at. You don't want to make people not do what they're good at. If you have somebody who's just a great mid-range scorer and a, you know, a guy who can get to the rim and, and do all the stuff that DeRozan can do, you put him in a position where he can do what he's best at because that's what's going to help your team. And it seems like the, the Spurs have kind of figured out how to get to uh, a place where they can utilize him but then still you know be able to play enough of you know a modern style that it you know, doesn't take away from you know their their chances to be competitive in the league with the way everybody else is playing i mean we'll see how the defense uh, develops the defense hasn't been good so far and that's been what i think has contributed to their struggles so far to start the season but uh, you know from an offensive standpoint just for what you know you were expect what you would expect from DeRozan and, and you know pairing him with LaMarcus Aldridge that's been working out pretty well so far
0: yeah, I wasn't sure about that fit either just because of the mid-range game. Obviously, you mentioned it in, in the piece, like you're saying, that it's kind of an archaic style at this point, which it'll be interesting to see if the league eventually comes back around that way a bit. Um, but yeah, right, it cramps the spacing right now. Um, but early on, it, it doesn't seem like it's too much of a problem. Um, Popovich has always been really good at playing to his personnel and not um, really worrying about, you know, outside, just outside things that could come in. Like, I mean, you know... There was the thing with Toronto last season with um, Ibaka. People criticized maybe he was getting too many minutes because he has a larger contract and felt like maybe he should be getting those minutes. I know Popovich has always done a very good job of seeming to just play to the best style of the personnel that he has as basketball players when they're on the floor. Not that they've had a lot of issues that are similar to that one money-wise, but um, so even now, you know, he's playing lineups that, Uh, DeRozan and Aldridge will both be out there but they have spacers around them um, at least the spacers that they've got like Bryn Forbes and Rudy Gay will be out there a lot with them so in terms of those two in particular DeRozan and Aldridge do you think they look good just like playing off of one another I know DeRozan seemed to be interested in like a lot of the pick and pops he likes to go in and you know his playmaking which um, I want to get to as well has been like off the charts to start this season so I think they seem to be finding kind of a rhythm that way early on. Is that what you're seeing as well?
1: Yeah. Now the first couple of games of the season, it seemed like Aldridge was maybe struggling to find his rhythm. Uh, you know, he he you know he was struggling those first two games of the year. But then you know that 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 next game against the Lakers, uh, that big, that big win, uh, they. Like, right after the suspensions, uh, I mean, maybe this is part of it, but, but, you know, Aldridge had a huge game in that game, and, you know, it seems like he's picked it up a little bit since then. You know, it's the kind of thing, whenever you have two guys who are both very ball-dominant like that, it's going to take time for them to figure out how to play together, unless it's like a Kevin Durant-Warrior situation where he just seemed to blend in perfectly right away, but that's just an outlier that you can't really... But, you know, even like LaMarcus Aldridge, like in turn, when he first got to San Antonio, it was a struggle for him for a couple of years because he was used to being the guy in Portland all the time and having everything run through him. And then he gets to San Antonio and they were running every, you know, Tim Duncan was still there and, you know, Manu was still there and they, you know, they, they still had other guys that they were running through. Kawhi obviously was, you know, one of their, one of their main scorers at the time. And then... It just you know, it took some time, and then you know, remember a couple summers ago, he uh, basically wanted out of San Antonio because he didn't think they were using him properly. But then he sat down with Popovich, mm-hmm. and they talked it out, and then that, that, you know he had a career year last year where they where they kind of figured out uh, how to use him best, and, and and really put him in position to succeed. You know, now yeah, you bring in a guy like DeRozan, who also is used to being one of the go to guys in Toronto. And then he goes to San Antonio, where it's a whole culture and a whole you know system that they already had set up. He's going to have to adapt to that. So like, it's kind of a thing where both him and, and Aldridge are going to have to adapt to each other, and it's going to be a process. But I think they're headed in the right direction. It's one of those things where like, when Greg Popovich is there, like he's, he has such a track record of making so many different kinds of personnel work that it's hard not to give them the benefit of the doubt that they're going to figure it out eventually.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm curious. Do you think that... In some ways, for DeRozan specifically, I guess, that the injuries were uh, a bit of a blessing in disguise for him just because, I mean, he needs the ball in his hands to be successful for at least most of his career. It's been that way. And, you know, in, in this situation now, he's basically playing point guard a lot of the time, um, like he would do last year in Toronto as well. And, you know, he's sitting on a 30.6% usage rate right now, which is the second highest of his career uh, at this point anyway. And, um, so yeah, like right now he's just getting a lot of chances to handle the ball and play make more. Do you think that would have necessarily been the case if, you know, DeJounte Murray hadn't been hurt or some like injuries like that? And, um, is this really allowing him to maybe ease his way into a new situation?
1: Well, it certainly helps when you have a guy like DeRozan who is used to having as much responsibility as he had in Toronto and, you know, and and then you know, if you if you had somebody like if they had you know if they had tapped you know Dejounte Murray as this is going to be our starting point guard, this is who's going to run the offense, uh, mm-hmm. then you know maybe it would have been different as far as him being able to adapt. But you know, like you said, it might be a sort of a blessing. Obviously, you never want to see an injury like that yeah. happen, and it's it's yeah. not good for the Spurs in the long run that Dejounte Murray, who's one of their young guys that they have a lot of belief in long term, is going to miss the whole season with a torn ACL. But he, you know. You know, it puts DeRozan in a position, though, where they, you know, he, he gets to, you know, make a lot of plays. And that was the kind of thing, you know, you look at his, you know, throughout the years in in, in Toronto, he was kind of seen as, oh, he's just a scorer, he's a black hole, he's kind of like a Kobe, you know, you know, mm-hmm. just a, a gunner type of guy. Yeah. Like, he's always had the ability to make plays for others and, and, and pass. And, you know, and if you look at in Toronto, his assist numbers that both, you know, just his assist per game and also some of his advanced stuff, like his assist rate and all that, that's all gone up over the years as he's you know gotten more comfortable you know in that capacity, and so I'm not surprised that you know now that now that he has more of that kind of responsibility in San Antonio, he you know he's always been a smart player, he's always been a guy with a high basketball IQ who sees the floor very well. It's just in Toronto, what he was asked to do was score a lot, and that's what he did. And now in San Antonio, his role might be a little bit different, but you know he's a smart enough player and a savvy enough player that I think he's going to be able to adapt to it just fine.
0: Yeah, it's one of my favorite things that um, a lot of people who maybe hadn't watched the Raptors before um, or at least much before are seeing more of now if they're watching DeRozan in San Antonio is that, you know, last season is when they went through their, their culture reset in Toronto and they changed their style of play and DeRozan was obviously a big part of that along with Lowry and Dwayne Casey and they moved away from isolation basketball which they were doing a lot of in the past and DeRozan in particular shifted his game by adding improved playmaking And, um, you know, just that way he could still have the ball in his hands and be successful um, rather than having to play off-ball a lot, which, you you know, he's an okay off-ball player, but there are parts that, like, are just tough for him. Like, the fact that he's not a great three-point shooter just makes it difficult. Um, He doesn't space the floor particularly well, um, especially when it comes to, you know, you get into the playoffs and things like that. And, you know, it it ended up working. The team wound up being really successful, uh, successful and they won 59 games and, all that stuff. So it, now he's showing off those skills in San Antonio, and he's looking better than ever. His playmaking seems to be on another level, just even better than it was last season. He's much more comfortable doing that now, and obviously the Spurs tend to have systems that encourage movement, um, and that's it's been in place there longer than that style has been brought to Toronto. Um, so, yeah, it's just it's really cool to see him shining that way, and you know, I think right now he's averaging about eight assists, which is by far the highest of his career
1: yeah he's in a way the Spurs are sort of reaping the benefits of that kind of reinvention of the offense that Dwayne Casey uh put in place in Toronto last year where you know they they were focusing more on moving the ball and they put DeRozan in that role and then you know they, they had their most successful regular season uh in franchise history and then obviously once you know they lost in the playoffs they decided to switch things up and do the Kawhi trade but now you know, DeRozan gets to Toronto and or not Toronto to San Antonio, and the uh, the Spurs get you know, he have now has that year of experience of playing in that style and he was successful in that style, and now they get to kinda of take advantage of that now that he's there.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean so long term I'm still kind of confused about this team. Even before the season started, there were you know um, just differing opinions all over the place about. Uh, some people thought they'd be a playoff team. Some people didn't think they'd be a playoff team at all. Some people thought they'd be a fairly high seed. Like I saw some as high as fourth. Um, and then all these injuries started pouring in, and Dejounte Murray got hurt, and Lonnie Walker got hurt, and Derek White got hurt, and you know there's they seem to especially be missing stuff like. Murray's defense for sure. So obviously it's extremely early and you kind of have to figure out as you go along where they're going to fall into place in the West. But how how do you feel about this team at the moment? Um, they've, They've really only beaten, you know, they beat the Lakers twice, which (laughs) <laughs> I bet for DeRozan feels a little a little good beating LeBron a couple times. And then Dallas, who's uh, not a great team, but a young team up and coming with Luka Doncic and um, Minnesota, which, you know, there's a lot of crazy stuff going on there. I'm not sure Carl Anthony Towns has really been out of it to start the season. And then the two teams they've lost to so far, are Portland and Indiana, who are, you know, some pretty good teams. So oh, how are you feeling about their chances at potentially getting into the playoff picture eventually?
1: Well, it's going to be tough, but it's kind of going to be tough for everybody. You know, There are just so many teams in the West that you look at on paper and say, uh, you know, this is a team that should be there. I had kind of going into the season, I had thought that San Antonio was going to be able to Get in just because uh, I kind of they're kind of the the team version of you know how we always give LeBron the benefit of the doubt no matter what dysfunction is 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 taking place with whatever team he's on the Spurs and Pop and all that that's kind of the team version of that and I still think they have enough good players that uh, they should be in the mix but it's been like the West has been so interesting at the beginning of the year you know obviously the Lakers have been struggling. But that you you knew that was gonna take some time for LeBron to okay. gel with all those guys. But then, you know, Houston has been struggling so far this year and I know they've had those suspensions from the fight, but like they, you know, they've been struggling. Oklahoma City has gotten off to kind of a rough start. Uh, and then you've got teams like the Clippers that have been a lot better than we maybe thought they were going to be to start the year. And it, it, the whole thing is just kind of up in the air. New Orleans has been a lot better than I think people expect them to be. Golden State is still just what they are. That you know, Utah's fine. Like, so it's going to be kind of tough. I don't think outside of Golden State, there's not really any team you can say, oh, this is definitely a playoff team. This is 100%. You know, these guys are going to make it Minnesota, even like, they, you know, they, they've played well whenever Jimmy Butler has played, but then they just kind of, there's so much dysfunction there, and you have to think he is eventually going to get traded. Like, I don't know, I think the Spurs are in that group that has a good shot to make the playoffs, but... I, until you know some of these other teams figure things out, I have to think Oklahoma City is eventually going to be better than they've been so far. I have to think Houston's going to figure things out eventually, but yeah, you know, for right now, you know, San Antonio just by default it looked like one of the better teams in the West, but I don't know how long that's going to last or how you know other teams are going to adapt or how other teams are going to kind of figure out what they are and who they are. So it's going to be kind of a long, you know, process to play out throughout the year. But I certainly think they're in that mix.
0: Yeah definitely. yeah, definitely. I think the um, Rosen's definitely going to have to keep playing really well offensively. It's, it's a bit tough to know if what they're doing now is sustainable. Again, it's really early. All these small sample sizes hard to pull anything significant from them, but like right now they're 7th in, in the league in taking 2-pointers, but I mean, they're only 27th in 2-point percentage, and that's kind of offset by the other way around with their 3-pointers, where they don't take very many, but they hit them when they take them, and you know, as it always is to start the season, there's a couple guys who are just shooting red hot flames every time they take the basketball and uh, shoot it. So there's that. Um, I think the defense is probably going to continue to be a real issue. Um, they're 24th in defensive rating right now, and I'm, um, you know, Derozan in particular, it won't help there necessarily. But you know, that's it's it's a tough thing about running lineups that. Uh, also you know try to provide to Rosen and Aldrich with spacing is that some of those guys aren't great defenders either like Bellinelli is not you know a fantastic defender um, Mills and Berton so uh, yeah I think that's going to be like an actual issue going forward I don't know how much better they can get defensively. they'll probably get a little bit better um, once that all starts to become you know cohesive but uh, yeah I think it's <laughs> especially with the loss of some players like Murray it's going to be a it's going to be a bit tough to um, shore things up on that end. So I, I honestly, like, I, I, I would do the cop-out answer. I have no idea if they're going to be able to make the playoffs or not. It's really tough. I guess I would I'd do sort of the same thing and bet on them making it just because, I kind of out of respect, um, like the same thing with, like, I still think the Lakers are probably going to make the playoffs even with their uh, not-so-hot start, but that's more out of a respect thing out of LeBron than it is, you know, to the actual Lakers team itself.
1: Yeah, I think you and I are on the same page. And I mean, another thing to keep in mind as far as the defense goes, you know, we talked about Murray. That, and that's you know, that's a loss. But also Danny Green, who has kind of treated yeah. a throw-in in the Kawhi trade. Mm-hmm. He's been playing great in Toronto, and he's been so important to the Spurs' defense over the last several years that uh, that he's been there. And that you know, it's it's a whole thing where like you know, th- th- these are just guys that you can't replace them that easily. And and there's all these new moving parts to. Uh, adjust to, and, you know, it's going to take some time, but I do think they're going to take a step back defensively.
0: Yeah, it's going to be, it'll be interesting to keep an eye on there. Um, that I, I do think that uh, they'll hopefully continue to be a pretty good offensive team, but I think the Rosen and Aldridge have quite of a load to carry there, not that they're not unused to it, so that'll be interesting to keep an eye on. Um, so, okay, so I want to move into um, talking to you a bit more about some writing stuff, because that's okay. kind of the other half of the podcast, and um, I know uh, a lot of listeners uh, actually. We almost prefer this stuff, which is interesting. Um, I've been getting some comments about that—that that they love hearing about um, just people's writing process and you know different aspects of their career and stuff like that. And uh, so I try to get into that uh, as much as possible without you know necessarily pressing too hard about whatever you know it is that um, gets you know it, writing's interesting. It's it's a it's a very personal thing um, to talk about. Mm-hmm. So um, I wanted to start just with uh, freelancing, which is interesting because I don't know too many people who freelance full-time. It's incredibly impressive to me <laughs> that um, if you're able to do it and sustain yourself through various outlets, and um, a lot of people obviously get nervous at the idea of trying to freelance full-time because it's not easy. So for you, do you prefer the freelance life, or is it, is it just a matter of, in terms of a full-time job, maybe like... Just finding one that sort of fits exactly what you want. Just because I know someone like, say, Blake Murphy, who used to be my managing editor at uh, Raptors Republic. And he was there, obviously, for a long time. Now he's with The Athletic full-time. And uh, he was a freelancer full-time for a while. And um, for him, it was, you know, he ended up um, finally going to The Athletic for a full-time. But um, I think he actually really quite enjoyed the, the freelance And, uh, so I just wanted to see, you know, how you felt about it, how your feelings are on just the life in general.
1: Well, I definitely prefer the security and the stability of having just one full-time gig. And that's, and and that's been kind of the, the mode I've been in the last, you know, year and a half or so, you know, since, since my last, uh, full-time gig ended, like I Well, you know, I I definitely I'm I'm hoping to eventually get back into, you know, being a beat writer for a team or, you know, writing for a national outlet full time and just having one place that I write. But, you know, in the meantime, you know, yeah, I, I have over the course of my career developed enough you know, relationships with editors and connections and stuff that I've been able to get work and, you know, get enough to at least keep myself going. It's certainly not a comfortable existence. You have to, you know, you have to hustle extra hard to, you know, get your, you know, get pitches to to editors and get ideas, you know, out there and, and you know and, and you know, do the work without kind of having that infrastructure of you know okay this is this place they're going to cover my travel they're going to give me this amount of time to work on this you know I, I I'm, I'm going to be like it, you know, it's definitely a, a, a struggle it's not for everybody but it's the kind of thing you know at various points in my career when I've been between full time gigs I have been able to kind of uh, at least make it work in the short term but I certainly don't view that as my permanent uh, plan to stay in the freelance game.
0: So it, so, in terms of, like, so while you have been doing the freelance, which is interesting, so it, there are obviously, like, a lot of cons, like you're mentioning, the security definitely being, I think, probably the biggest one that most people talk about, but do you find that, like, there are some pros to go along with the freelancing? Like, do you think, do you find that you're able to maybe write more things that you want to write about, or are you able to set your own schedule the way you want it, maybe, you know, you're able to do things that way that you wouldn't be able to do otherwise, or... Just are there things that you know you're able to do this way that you find that are actually enjoyable?
1: Well, it's different for everybody. There are, you know, there are definitely people for whom that you know they view that as a huge pro where you know you basically can only work on things that you want to work on and you you have to, uh, you, you know, every, every piece you know is, is more you know you, you put more into. Me personally, I came to you know, I kind of started out. Back, you know, when I was first getting into the business, my journey is kind of interesting. I started out as a plumber where I was just kind of writing a lot of kind of the more in-depth staff stuff and kind of only really focusing on stuff that I was really interested in. And then then kind of as time went on, you know, especially when I got to Chicago and I started, you know, being around the Bulls a lot, first with Bleacher Report and then with The Athletic, which is my last full-time gig, I kind of made myself into a beat writer and i kind of found that i really enjoy just the daily grind and the daily churn of being a beat writer and like Hmm. doing kind of the routine practice updates and stuff in addition to the bigger features that are maybe more you know artistically satisfying to work on i kind of like the structure and the routine and the uh uh and, and you know kind of the regularity of you know being covering a team and being on a beat and you know just doing the everyday stuff in addition to kind of the bigger stuff that you, that's more you know passion projects i kind I kind of like that better personally, but that's certainly not true of everybody.
0: did you have a particular thing that was like your favorite part of being a a beat writer when you're around the Bulls?
1: Well, just feel like you know it, it, you know how it is when you, when you're like I don't know if you go to games or anything in Toronto, but like it's it you know when, when, when you know you, you build relationships. And the thing the thing that I really like the most about the beat writer thing is, is the people. Like you build relationships when yeah. you're around that much, with not just players but and coaches, but with just like team staffers or like the equipment manager or, you know, just just you know, PR people or who, whoever. And, you know, other other writers like that kind of stuff is a lot easier to do when you're around the team and you're going to every game and every practice and every shoot around and you're on the road with them and, and, you know, and you know that kind of stuff you kind of feel like you're more you know part of it as opposed to just sort of parachuting in like okay i'm coming to this game i'm gonna try to talk to whoever i have to talk to before the game in the locker room but like i don't really know the pr person as well so i don't really have the relationship where i can get this time with somebody if i need to like it's 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 definitely a give and take Because let I me mean, like we've said there are you know the, the the pros of kind of being in the situation that I'm in are, are that you uh, have more time to just you know say okay I'm only working on this story right now and I'm gonna take the time to make this story the best it can be as opposed to just kind of the day to day stuff but I like I said I found that I really came to enjoy kind of the grind aspect of the of the beat writer life
0: huh that's awesome so okay so this article in particular um, is sort of like there's you know, like, the overview of kind of how we got here and then sort of what's happening now. And then in, 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 in that, the writer, this time obviously being you, um, is, uh, has to kind of show a wide breadth of knowledge without getting too specific and too nitty-gritty, um, like you're mentioning about, like, when you're a blogger and writing more pieces that were, like, stat-heavy and stat-focused and stuff sure, like that. Yeah. Um, do you find these more difficult or simple to write or... Are they, you know, or do you prefer to dig into specific subjects with your writing when you can?
1: Well, I think you can't really say, you know, oh, I like to do it this way or I like to do it that way. You have to be able to do both. Like, there have been times where I wrote, you know, th- things that I've written where, you know, the whole point of it is, yes, this is for a more sophisticated audience where, you know, we have to, uh, you know, I'm going to dig in and, like, explain every single little detail about this stat or about this team's salary cap situation or what, like, like I, I, a thing I wrote, you know, out of training camp where, uh, uh, for the Blazers, you know, about Damian Lillard and kind of the supermax. max uh, mm-hmm eligibility situation that he has coming up for something like that you have to explain all the collective bargaining agreement stuff and you have to explain that stuff because people might not know it but yeah. for something like this DeRozan piece like most people who follow the NBA know kind of that DeRozan was very popular and very successful in Toronto for a number of years so I don't need to go in and list every single one of his accomplishments in Toronto and list a bunch of franchise records he set and all that kind of stuff because that's just going to take away from the piece you always have to think about Who's going to be reading what you're writing, and what uh, they are going to need to get out of the piece? You don't want to just like bog somebody down with details that aren't really central to the story, just to prove that you know it, or just to make the word count longer, or whatever. You have to be able to, you know, take a step back with each individual piece and say, uh, okay, this is enough information to include to include the context and you know, give everybody enough uh, of a background of what's going on or what the piece is about. Without getting so in the weeds that you kind of turn people off and take away from the larger point of the story. And in this case – you know, you have to give that overview, especially, you know, writing for a national outlet like Bleacher Report, where everybody who reads that article isn't a diehard Spurs fan or a diehard Raptors fan who knows, like, the whole history of what those teams have done or, you know, what what the dynamic was going after the trade. You might just be a casual NBA fan who is, is clicking on the, on the piece because they recognize the Spurs name or because they recognize DeMar DeRozan's name because he's been an All-Star a bunch of times, but they might not be, like... The you know the the most diehard like they might not like know have known the whole Spurs salary cap situation so you have you have to kind of give enough background about that kind of stuff so that people will be able to stay with you and you won't just lose people right away but you have to also just not overwhelm people with too many details like that and that and it's a tough balance to strike and it's the kind of thing you know I used to. Back, you know, years ago, I used to be, you know, err on the side of like, oh, I'm going to put in all this stuff and put in all this stuff, and mm-hmm. I found that, you know, it made a lot of the stuff I was writing less accessible. Mm. And I think that, that that's something that i kind of worked on trying to get better at. You know, getting more concise, getting more, you know, be, you know, becoming a better at you know selecting which details are important to put in and which ones aren't, because you know, if you do that, that can make or break the piece.
0: So, do you ever feel then like you're? Forcing yourself to pull back a little bit, or are you at the point now where you're just kind of you're just able to slip into that mode of writing?
1: I think I'm pretty versatile in terms of being able to, you know, in terms of being able to switch into you know different different audiences and you know, know when a piece has to be in this much detail or, or be more of an overview, like maybe this DeRozan thing was, uh, and and you know and and uh, and and just kind of, and just kind of picking and choosing each individual piece. I don't have one thing now at this point that i kind of try to you know do by default i just kind of look at each individual piece like the next one i'm working on is about uh dwight howard and his kind of fit with the with the wizards and you know whether he's going to be able to help them and and all that kind of stuff mm-hmm. and it's the kind of thing where i'm going to have to figure out how much of i want to go into his whole career and how he's kind of left on bad terms at a few different stops along the way that he is uh has had uh, you know over the last several years, and how much of it do I want to just focus on? You know, with the wizards and how he can fit in, and it's going to be the kind of thing where once I sit down to really do that, I'm going to have to, f- you know, figure out which of that, you know, which which of those directions I'm going to have to go
0: in. Yeah, and sort of bouncing off of that right into the actual writing, like your diction and word choice. Um, I find your writing very smooth and accessible, like you were saying. So clearly, that's Thank you. working. Um, it's not o- overly flowery, or and not also purely bare bones. It's it's a very, very good mixture of both. And so when you're writing, that's was sort of one of my questions. Very, it's kind of similar what we're talking about. But do you think a lot about the reader when you're writing? Like, is your style at all um, a product of partially, you know, trying for both entertaining and that easy reading experience?
1: Well, you. Have- to, to a degree, unless you're going to just be, you, you know, I mean, obviously, you know, there are people who just, you know, who write, you know, get so flowery with, with their writing that, you know, you can look at it objectively and say, okay, this is great writing, this is just great mastery of the language, but if it doesn't resonate with people, mm. If, if you're putting something out like it's one thing if you're just writing purely for yourself like as a as a therapeutic exercise like nobody is gonna read it and it doesn't matter if it's accessible to anybody besides yourself that's one thing that's a totally different thing but if you know for something like this where the point of it is to have other people read it you don't want to alienate the reader by just making it so inaccessible and so hard to uh, you know, to connect with I. You know, I have so much respect for people who are able to write these long features and long profiles, and are able to do it in a way that shows off their writing ability and still makes it accessible to readers who maybe don't have English degrees. Uh, but, but yeah, for me, I definitely try to think about like are people going to be able to follow this? Are people going to be able, especially, you know, when I go with like flow and, you know, st- structure and, and word choice and stuff, like I, I, I'm I big on like, you know, I, what I'll do a lot of the time is I'll just like kind of like get everything down on paper and then I'll go back through and tighten up like, okay, I use this word here too many times. It's going to be redundant. Like I should change this or I should phrase this differently so it doesn't get too repetitive or, you know, th- that, that's kind of how I do it. The other kind of variable here is, you know for somebody like me who you know i you know have had been a beat writer for several years and i still kind of approach these kinds of things from that mentality of like i want to go in i want to talk to people i want to get quotes i want to you know get you know get that kind of color as opposed to it just being my writing and my opinion and my analysis but then when it comes to like getting quotes and stuff you have to be able to select you know What's important to put in? What's important to leave out? You know, you don't want to just because you've got all these quotes, you don't have to use all of them if they don't add to the story, just to mm-hmm. increase the word count or increase, you know, the amount of quotes that you have just for the sake of it. So that's kind of a balance you have to strike, and like pick, you know, what goes where, and then how to transition between them. Like that's that's a skill in and of itself, and that's something that I feel like I, you know, I still have a long way to go to get better at, but it's something that I, you know, it, it's something that I have a high uh, motivation to work on.
0: So are you like a self-editor then where you're just, um, as you go, you're sort of going through things over and over and sort of picking exactly where you want stuff to go, like quotes and things um, as you're going along, or is it more like, you know, you write it and then you go over it again and you do the next thing, or do you uh, tend to rely heavily on um, editors at different uh, outlets, or how does that work?
1: You know, it, it a lot of it is very self-directed, at least in my experience. I will you know go through you know when I when I'm doing you know for a piece like the DeRozan piece you know I you know I have all the quotes I have you know some stuff from him some stuff from Pops some stuff from a couple of the teammates and so I go through and I figure out okay these are the, probably the quotes that I'm going to want to include and then I kind of build it around that in terms of like you know do I want to you know which one am I going to put first? Which, you know, how am I going to put them in this order? How am I going to transition between them? And then from there, I just kind of, you know, you build just kind of a skeleton of like, okay, I'm going to transition from this to this, from this to this, and just kind of get it laid out. And then I go back through it and say, okay, now I'm going to like make sure all this flows in a way that makes sense, and you know, change up the word choice and change up all the sentence structure and change up, you know, how I transition from one thing to another and make it actually make sense the piece as opposed to just putting all the information on paper so it's kind of it's kind of a a process in that sense
0: okay cool yeah i i I tend to be i'm a very heavy self-editor um so i will like you know i'll write a paragraph and then i go i don't continue necessarily immediately i'll go right back to that paragraph and go over it and make sure that the grammar and stuff is pristine before i go on Um, and I know there's a lot of writers that don't do that sort of thing. Um, I don't have as much experience with, uh, plugging in quotes, but the times that I have done it, um, I, I found that picking them as well is, uh, is, can be an arduous process just because, you know, you get a lot of good ones and then, you know, but not all of them are going to fit and, um, sort of figuring out where to put them, um, whether you build your piece around it or you kind of plug them in as you go, um, can be, a a difficult process
1: <laughs> well it's not even just a lot of times it isn't even just that, too, that that there are too many good ones to include there have been times and I've, I've gone back and read like things I've written years ago and thought like there have been times where I would just include a quote just for the sake of including a quote, just to yeah. make it clear that I was there and I was talking to people. like And and that and that's the kind of thing that ends up taking away from the story, where if a quote is in there just because it exists and it doesn't really add anything to the story, over the last few years, I feel like I've done a much better job of, uh, go, of, of being able to say, OK, if I put this quote in, is this going to add to the story? Like, is this going to? make it better? Or or, or, would it, or is it something that I could just, you know, write myself with analysis and not have to just put a quote in just for the sake of having a quote? And it's a tough line to walk, especially for somebody, like I said, like me, I was so used to, you know, being a beat writer. And, you know, every day, you know, we'd go to practice and, you know, you talk to the coach, you talk to players and some days they wouldn't say anything interesting and you had to just kind of say, you know, you, you know you had to write something out of whatever nothing that they gave you. And so it, you it, it, it's, it's easy sometimes if you're not careful to fall into the habit of just, you know, putting in quotes and just transitioning into them and just kind of falling into that pattern. And that can, you know, that can make you lazy or that can make your writing formulaic. So you have to really be conscious of if you're using quotes, you know, from a player for something like that. I mean, it's one thing if you know you're writing a profile of a player, like a big feature on a guy, where you know, you spend a lot of time with them, you spend a lot of time talking to people around them, and that's kind of the point of it, if it's to, is to tell somebody's story, as opposed to something like this, where you know, yes, it's a story about DeMar DeRozan, but like I didn't spend a ton of time one-on-one with the guy. I wasn't like talking to his high school coach and talking to his. Uh, you know, family members or former teammates or stuff like that. Like I would have if it was maybe a more, you know, a, a feature that I would have had more time to turn around or that uh, I had more time to dig into. But it was still like, it was a story about him, but it was also kind of about the team. And it was written on like the new, like I, you know, the, the game that, uh, that, that they uh, played was on a Saturday. And the story, I believe, went out on a Tuesday. So I was basically like in the mode of, okay, I have to, you know, go to the game, you know, talk to whoever I need to talk to, get what I need to get and then write it relatively quickly. And so there have been times in the past where, you know, I've had stuff like that and I haven't been able to get very good stuff. And, uh then I've had to somehow still salvage it and make it work. And that could be a challenge. I was lucky in this case that some of the stuff that, you know, Greg Popovich, who, as you know, as somebody who's watched a lot of probably TNT broadcasts, stuff like, he can be very hit and miss when it comes to talking to the media. I was very fortunate that I asked him a couple of questions about DeRozan uh, and he was somehow able to, you know, he was somehow for whatever reason willing to, Actually, expounded a way that I think actually gave me some valuable information for the story, as opposed to just kind of giving you coach speak or boilerplate quotes that would have been a lot less compelling.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, and yeah, that's that is a uh, um, really this is a fascinating process. Definitely one I have not been nearly inside. I've never been a beat writer for sure, so that is a really interesting insight just into how that it works um, in terms of. Quirks. Do you have any writing quirks? And by just by that, I mean like when you're actually sitting down to do the process of writing, um, is there anything that just is sort of like an oddity that um, you just do or you need to have done before you start or while you're doing it or whatever? Because I know uh, a lot of writers... They don't even necessarily think of it that way, but they'll, you know, they'll have something that they, like, they need. Like, there are people who need to write in coffee shops, or there are people like me who I need to have a glass of water beside me at all times while writing, or uh, things like that.
1: Well, I definitely do a lot of work in coffee shops. Uh, <laughs> it's, uh, you know, that, that I, def- I definitely feel like I'm more productive when I'm out of the house. Yeah. So I'm just like, yeah, you because know, because you know when you're when you're when you're at home you're just kind of you get kind of stagnated. So like I definitely try to get out to different places and get out to, yeah, uh, you know, and, and you know kind of you know change up where I go and, and and stuff. And then you know you pick out different music and you pick out different just you know, just different environments to, to be in. And you know you got to keep yourself fresh. I mean there are some people who just love that routine of like oh I only write at this coffee shop or I you know I I do. Or, you know, I have to do it the same. I, I try to switch it up as much as possible.
0: Hmm. Yeah, okay. That's interesting. Um, yeah, I tend to... I, I, I mix it up a lot. I write at home sometimes, and then sometimes I'll go out. Sometimes I'll actually, if I can, if I have, like, enough battery or whatever, I will actually just write outside. I sometimes find it difficult to deal with noise levels, depending where... There's, like, a decibel level that, like, I'm cool with, and then if it exceeds that, it's, like, hard for me to, like, focus... Which is something that I'm trying to work on because I know that that's not always, you know, you're going to end up being in situations where you have to write under duress. So, um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, um, and then a
1: lot of times, and then a lot of times, you know, when I was on the, when I was on the Bulls beat, you know, a lot of times, you know, you have to write after games, you know, in the media room, and you have to, you know, you have a deadline, you have to get it done by a certain point, and and yeah. so. You, know, you 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 have to be adaptable you have to you you can't I mean unless you're like somebody who writes books and you're you know you're you're a you're, uh, somebody who just has time to just do everything you need to do artistically you don't have kind of the day-to-day deadlines and the day-to-day news cycle but somebody who writes the kind of stuff that I write does you have to uh, be able to adapt and be able to flourish in different environments or else you're just not going to be able to get what you need to get done done
0: yeah absolutely you have to yeah, it's really it's just a different process and depending on the industry and stuff like that and that, that's that's what this one is. There's a lot of uh constantly moving parts and um deadlines that need to be met and um it's it's definitely a process getting there but we all seem to somehow get there <laughs> in the end. Yeah. I um, certainly
1: hope so. That's the goal.
0: Yeah. So Uh, we're running out of time here, but, um, I want to thank you again for coming on, Sean. I really appreciate it. Uh, I'll have to get you back on again if you'd like to come back. It was awesome talking to you. Um, is there anything you want to plug before uh, I let you go?
1: Yeah. Uh, so you can follow me on Twitter at Hyken, uh, which is my last name, H-I-G-H-K-I-N. I -I I just had something go come up, uh, this morning at Fansided where I kind of just, building off of Ty Lue getting fired over the uh, weekend, I yeah. kind of looked at all the different fire coach games of the last uh, 10 years or so and just kind of looked at whether it's true that like the team always wins the first game after they fire their coach. It turns out it's true a lot of the time they play the Hawks tonight. I don't know when this is going up, but that was kind of a fun off-the-wall idea that I had that I just kind of threw together pretty quickly that – uh, where I just kind of looked at, into a bunch of different stuff because so you should check that out that was a lot of fun to work on and then you know I have a couple of things coming up for BR like I said I have that Dwight Howard thing coming out at some point uh, I'm pretty sure it's coming out on Friday but I don't want to set that in stone because that hasn't been finalized I have some stuff for Uproxx coming up pretty soon Uh other than that, I'm just kind of out here grinding. I'm do I'm doing whatever I'm doing. I'm going to be, you know, keep I'm going to be out there I'm still writing all this kind of stuff. So just, you know, check out my stuff uh, Thanks for a lot for having me on. This is a lot of fun.
0: Yeah, no, again, I really appreciate it. Um yeah, so definitely li- if you're listening to this, go find all that stuff. Uh, Sean's work is amazing. It's fantastic. Um That's very nice of you to say. I appreciate that. <laughs> It's it's great. I've been reading you for a long time actually. So it's really uh, it's quite an experience for me to have you on the podcast. So, uh, I uh, really appreciate it. Um, if you haven't read uh, Sean's Peace on DeRozan, again, it's at Bleacher Report. It's called DeMar DeRozan Spurs Embracing New Normals No One Ever Saw it Coming. You can go there and read it right now. And if you want to find this podcast, you can on uh, Anchor.fm or the Anchor app if you have it. It's called the Writer's Right Podcast. Uh, it's also on Apple Podcasts because there was enough demand for it, so it is there now. And you can follow the podcast on Twitter, at WritersWritePod, uh, where the links to the episodes will be posted, as well as links to my guest's articles. Until then, you can follow me, at HoutVolution, on Twitter, and you can find my own online work at RaptorsRepublic, Republic, ball Breakdown, and Scene Creek, if you're into movies. Uh, so thank you for listening, and have a good day.